idea. Hey, this is Taylor Gray, Ezra Bridger from Star Wars Rebels, and you are listening to the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. Taylor Gray and Ezra Bridger say out. more knowledge here than anywhere else in the galaxy. Only members of the Jedi Council are allowed access. Guarding the holocrons is one of the most important duties a Jedi can be given. Do you think you're up to the task? to another episode of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. I'm your host, Rob, and we are recording this episode on Saturday, October 3rd, 2020. All right, so our main topic this week is Sabine Wren with the impending release of season two of The Mandalorian coming up here on October 30th. Uh, and there's certainly going to be fans out there who are more familiar with the films, maybe less familiar with some of the animated series. And that is where Sabine really uh, comes from, is Star Wars Rebels. And uh, there are actually some tie-ins with her, uh, specifically with her mother in uh, The Clone Wars as well. So who I have brought on this week to talk with me about that is uh, Adam Goswick from the Certain Point of View podcast. Adam, thank you for coming on. And I've also got Michelle Smith from Force of Light Entertainment, uh, one half of that talented duo. So Michelle, thank you for coming on as well. Yes, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Cool. <laughs> I'm in uh, hardcore competition with Pat and Charles over at Conversations for uh, <laughs> seeing who can have the fewest listeners. So, And they've got their wives on the show. So before we dive into the conversation here, I think I'm going to start this episode off with a really cool featurette uh, from StarWars.com. Certainly, uh, anytime Dave Filoni gets a chance to talk about any of these characters that he's created, uh, there's a lot of great content there, and uh, we're going to start off with that, and then we'll jump into the discussion from there. Spectre 5 to Ghost, going in now. Well, Sabine, now she's one I know the fans will be excited about as soon as I say this, but she's a Mandalorian. She is spunky, she's feisty, she's got a little bit of attitude. And with that comes a great understanding of weapons and arms, and uh, she's definitely one that's turned against the Empire, and that's going to be to the Rebels' uh, benefit. Get ready to... She is very well-versed in explosives, and she likes to blow things up. She does it with flair because she's also an artist, so she's pretty rad. (laughs) She also does some graffiti art on the side for fun. The Imperials always know when our Rebels have attacked because Sabine likes to tag their site. She'll sometimes take her blaster and blast like uh, the Phoenix symbol on the wall. We have a library of graffiti that we get to design for Sabine, but we're always adding new ones because she's, she's always doing something kind of specific. 
she's adding something that we really haven't seen in the Star Wars universe. You have a, a character that is um, expressively creative through art, whether it's the, the color of her hair or what she's done to her armor. I mean, she's, she, she personalizes things. I love the way she dresses. She just seems hip. She knows how to have fun, but she's also serious. I love her. I wish I was her. She's cool. She's smart. She's kind of a tomboy. She's not like a prissy little girl, and I love that. I'm probably prissier in real life than she is, so I get to kind of explore this sassy, strong, kick-butt kind of character, and uh, I think uh, she's kind of an inspiration. But yeah, Sabine Wren, uh, I think uh, it's probably not a stretch to say, certainly a fan favorite uh, in Star Wars Rebels, certainly one of the most colorful characters in Star Wars Rebels. And I, it's interesting, I talked to a lot of people who maybe didn't get into watching Star Wars Rebels because they didn't care for the art style of it. Um, but I always tell people that it's uh, it's definitely a huge plus to watch that. Uh, there is a ton of amazing backstory that you can get out of that particular series. And Sabine certainly is one of the vessels that uh, that, that backstory gets carried through so uh the ties to the clone wars as i mentioned her mother uh, ursa ren was part of death watch and then later the night owls and we saw quite a bit of her in season seven of the clone wars so uh that should kind of be fresh on a lot of people's minds and uh you know she was a very interesting character very tightly tied to bo-katan cries uh, and that entire Mandalorian arc at the end of season seven. So, um, you know, when you guys think of Ursa Wren specifically, um, you know, anything that jumps out about her that you see kind of carried forward into the character of Sabine? Adam, I'll let you cover that. <laughs> I was just going to say her leadership qualities. I mean, you know, obviously, we, like you mentioned, we, we, she's the uh, she's the leader of Clan Wren. So I think that Ursa Wren's leadership qualities really carry over into her daughter you know sabine's always wanted to take charge and uh one of the earliest uh members of the rebellion and you know leading the leading the way in that aspect and then you did you didn't yeah, actually um i'll throw this in on my own but even her yeah. father you can see some of his he was actually an artist so you see some of his artistic skills carry over in her so she's kind of the best of both worlds with her parents you know moving uh blending you know what they both did so well using her mother's leadership qualities and her father's art to really make a, a start a movement uh, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, and I think that um, that is one of the things that makes her such an interesting character because, uh, you know, as with many of the specters or the the group of rebels that she starts out with at the beginning of, of the rebels uh, animated series, they all kind of have, you know, their role as a rebel, but they've also kind of got their own hidden abilities. Uh, you've got Harrison Dula and, and her piloting and leadership abilities. You've got Kanan Jarrus and kind of some of his hidden force abilities that you, you get to learn a little bit about early on in that show um and you know then you've got a character like zebarelius who's one of the other members who uh, the interesting thing about him is that he was one of the early prototypes for chewbacca um back when uh, when the original star wars film was getting created so there's some cool tie-ins to star wars history as well but as you pointed out this kind of dual nature to her where she's this warrior um a weapons designer uh as we come to find out over the course of the series uh of rebels but also this this artist artistic side of her and that 
very much defines her character. And uh, a lot of her art kind of goes a long way toward defining this group of rebels that she runs with over the course of that show. I guess when, when I think of Sabine, certainly she kind of is a little, she has a little bit of a Han Solo in her as well. Uh, she's kind of got that, uh, that, cocky gambler aspect to her character uh, I would say um, Michelle do you see any of that correlation with Sabine in that particular series? I definitely see what you're saying in that and whether you want to call it cocky or just confident um, you see that with Sabine from the moment you meet her she's very confident there's just, there's just a lot of life in this character and just a lot of confidence mm. in her abilities whether it's being on that jetpack that she's very good on or just whatever she's doing. She's yeah. very, she's a confident woman. Yeah. I, I guess, I mean, maybe cocky wasn't the right word to use. She's certainly got a gambler, a little bit of a gambler yes. streak in her. She's uh, constantly tagging uh, various pieces of Imperial equipment with her art. Uh, it's you know, usually spray painted um, very early on in the series. We see her tag a, a tie fighter with that starboard symbol um, that we then start to see associated with uh, the ghost and the specters um, and later kind of turns uh, into what becomes, you know, the Phoenix symbol uh, for them when they really kind of join up with the rebellion as a whole, um, although that's, you know, down the road a ways. But um, it, it's also note, worth noting that we've already talked about her mother and her, her father, but she also has a brother um, who kind of as a byproduct of Sabine um, speaking out against the Empire was sort of uh, forced to join the Imperial Super Commandos. Um, and that is an interesting group because we really don't get to see them anywhere outside of this animated series. And they are, I think, really what the Mandalorians were intended to be originally when uh, when Lucas was thinking up a character like Boba Fett. Um, it was going to be more like a, an Imperial Super Commando, and they really turn that uh, corner in this particular series, and you get to see that straight on. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things, and, and I alluded to it earlier, is that uh, Sabine was very, from very early on when she was in the Imperial Academy on Mandalore, uh, she uh, made herself stand out as a weapons developer and actually uh, created a weapon called the Duchess, which was uh, an arc um, gen a generator weapon that would disintegrate Beskar armor and uh, incinerate the Mandalorian that was encased within it. Uh, and so that, I mean, especially at an early age, that's a huge burden to place on someone when the Imperial, uh, military then turns around and uses that to subjugate your people. Um, within, within kind of that arc of the storyline in Sabine's past, you know, were there any, uh, any thoughts that you had about really how that impacted her character development throughout what we saw in Rebels? I think that's, I mean, that's a major moment for her. I mean, she's, you know, she's kind of in a lot of ways like all in with with you know uh the imperial side of things and seeing how her own little how her own weapon is used against her people that you know sets her up to do you know what, what we see she does going forward you know yeah uh really changes her path almost kind of like a galen urso type moment you know uh what the the weapon that he created and seeing what that was capable of he wasn't ever really sold on the imperial side of things right um but you know it it, it set him on a, on a path seeing yeah. what his work was used for and i i think that it reminds me a lot of of her story it set her on the path to join a rebellion and really get uh disowned by her family leave everything that she's known and try to try to rectify what she's done 
Yeah, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that it was, you know, kind of a travesty for the Mandalorians, or they would look at something like that very harshly, given how they feel about their about their Beskar armor. Uh, I think, you know, especially folks that have come to this whole Mandalorian arc outside of, say, a Boba Fett, through watching the Mandalorian, one of the things they really focused on is, you know, this this um, religion uh, that they that, that even Din Djarin talks about uh, in one of the episodes where his weapons are his religion and certainly their armor is part of that religion as well. So something that is going to take, you know, this thing that gives them the advantage uh, to the point where they can even potentially compete with a Jedi in battle uh, and essentially renders it not just worthless but a death trap um, is going to, I think, create some very strong feelings amongst her people. And I, it's not surprising that she would get cast out for that. So, you know, there's not a, a lot of uh, super important backstory with Sabine. Uh, she does, you know, end up basically, as you said, getting thrown off her planet. Um, she does, uh, she is assisted in that escape by some Wookiees. So she kind of feels like she owes a debt yeah. uh, to the Wookiee people. And we see that kind of manifest itself in uh, the story that we see through Rebels. But one of the other things that's interesting about uh, Sabine is that because she is part of House Wren, which is uh, part of Clan Vizsla, uh, she has direct ties back to Tar Vizsla, who we've talked about previously on this podcast with regards to the Darksaber. I won't do it. So you do know what the Darksaber is? I know it caused my family nothing but trouble after Maul took it. Maul used it to divide and conquer our people. You can wield it to do the opposite. Wield it? You're crazy! Kanan, tell him he's crazy. Consider what he has to say. What? I don't think it's a coincidence this saber came into your possession. Yeah, but Kanan, that doesn't mean she can fight with it. I mean, no offense. Go on. What I mean is, look, it's taken me a while to learn. And, I mean, I use the Force. She might not be able to fight like a Jedi, but she can learn to be proficient with the blade. I am proficient with many types of blades, and blasters, and explosives, but that is a lightsaber. The combat training is not as important as what that blade represents. Right, right. You want me to lead my clan. I don't know if you realize this, but I'm not that popular with my family these days. That can change. No, it can't. You don't know what you're talking about. I know that family is important to the Wrens, just like it is to all Mandalorians. I have a family, here, on this ship. I don't need them. But we do. If there's a chance that you can rally an army of Mandalorian warriors to our cause, I have to ask you to do it. And that's where I really start to see um, it's one of the key ties that I see that would really bring her into play in season two uh, with that big reveal at the end of season one. You know, Michelle, when when you think back to the episodes in Star Wars Rebels with Sabine and the Darksaber uh, and the fact that really she had a chance to claim that for herself um, and become, a, you know, the, the ruler of Mandalore and chose not to do that. Do you see, you know, any any obvious correlations between her and, and potential reasons why she would want to track down that Darksaber in Mandalorian Season 2? Yeah, I could see that. Well, and I was going to say, too, I think uh, her turning down the Darksaber goes back to what you guys just talked about. Because to me, Sabine's, uh, that kind of is her arc, is finding where she belongs mm -hmm. after this horrific thing that she did. And she's kind of disowned from her, I mean, definitely disowned by her people. Uh, so I think, you know, there's a sense of her that doesn't feel worthy to take the dark saber or to be that person for them because of what she did. 
So I could definitely see with the connection, that's where if they want to bring Sabine in, it makes, as soon as I saw that at the end of season one, that's yeah. where your mind goes. You wonder with Dave Filoni being behind it, are they going to bring in Sabine Wren? Are you going to bring in Ahsoka? What are you going to do? Because it's just so easy. It's such an easy connection at that point. Because right. at that point, you know, you're even, I get, does Rebels actually, the very final scene of Rebels, is it one year after the Battle of Jakku or right after? I, I don't Holy. think they ever mention how long afterwards right. it is. And that's one of the things that kind of causes me um, a little bit of angst because it's hard to nail it down in the timeline, right? It's it's very clearly after the defeat of the Empire and clearly after the defeat uh, of the Empire at Endor as well. So not only is it past the Battle of Yavin, but it goes past the Battle of Endor. Um I get the feeling that still there's a period of time that's passed. So it could bring it very close to this time frame that we're looking at with the Mandalorian. Um, and actually one of the things that I thought first, uh, they talked about the fact that Ahsoka potentially uh, is going to be showing up here in season two of the Mandalorian. And one of the things, as you mentioned, uh, in that kind of final speech they give at the end of Rebels is Ahsoka and Sabine are just about to head out to try to track down Ezra Bridger, um, one of the other members of, of their team, for anyone who's not familiar with him. Uh, and that could very well be, you know, the, the mission that they're setting off on that potentially brings them in contact with uh, Din Djarin um, and the child. Uh, kind of as they're getting ready or, or already st set off on this quest to find Ezra. Um, so I, I think the timing could work out very well. Uh, they could have already been on the search for some period of time, but we know that she and Ahsoka are traveling together for a very specific purpose. So I would think if, if Ahsoka comes into play for Mandalorian season two, that's why I still think Sabine is, is likely to show up. Well, and what I was going, where I was going with that is, and not saying she's going to, I, I mean, I may have my own different theory on this, but but I think at this point, because she helped defeat the Empire, she probably now feels more worthy, like personally feels more worthy to take that leadership position if she so desires. So right. I think that they could go that route with the Darksaber if they wanted with Sabine. Or, you know, I've got my other theories I'll hold on to what they could possibly do with the Darksaber. But <laughs> I think any, regardless, it's very easy for them to bring Sabine into the story. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually kind of thinking that, you know, like you mentioned, she chose not to take up that, that saber. You know, she left it on Mandalore. This is only the beginning. The Empire will send everything they have to crush Mandalore. That is why you should lead us, my lady. You had the courage to make a difficult decision. With your guidance, you have the wisdom of a ruler. There's no one I trust to wield the Darksaber more than you. And I am not alone. Clan Vistla is with you. Clan Rook is with you. Clan Elder is with you. Clan Kreese is with you. The Protectors are with you. Clan Wren is with you. Now I understand why the Saber came to me. It came to me so I could pass it to you. I accept this sword for my sister. 
for my clan, and for all of Mandalore. If she if she learned some somehow some through the grapevine that that saber isn't where she left it anymore, she might feel a certain responsibility uh, to jump into the fray to you know to take that take that back and maybe uh, maybe be more in charge of it or you know maybe just even maybe even just even get it back to where it should be you know maybe that's all she's concerned about but um, but yeah I think if she knows. That it's not where she left it. It's not where she wanted it to be. I, I think that could be enough to to maybe get her to jump into action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting as well because there again has there's been talk of Katie Sackoff um, being part of Mandalorian season two, so we could be looking at uh, an appearance by Bo-Katan, which again would tie back to the dark saber. Um, so I definitely think that there is uh, there's going to be some plot line in Mandalorian season two that is related, whether it's backstory. Uh, which is altogether possible, uh, or whether they're actually going to kind of move that forward as a as an alternate um, kind of plot within that season. I find that harder to believe, just given the tight timeline that we've got. Uh, at least when we what we saw in season one, uh, not a lot of episodes. None of them were particularly long. Uh, I think they're going to have their hands full, kind of telling the story of Din and the child, kind of uh, going off and trying to to find his place. Um, but I do have to believe with that reveal of the Darksaber that even if it's just backstory, they're going to have to uh, dig into that a little bit. And I think, um, you know, that is likely where we're going to see some of these characters come in. Yeah. Sounds good to me. <laughs> you see, wrote season two, right? I wish. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds, it sounds like you, if I had sounds re- like you could have done a fine if, job. If I had written season two, <laughs> I wouldn't need to podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, I got Dave Filoni sitting in the corner over here, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Tell him I said hi. I, I will. Dave, they said hi. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, w- with regard to Sabine, there are a lot of um, a lot of interesting aspects to her character, but certainly one of the things, as Adam mentioned earlier, is uh, her artwork, and her artwork was very distinctive, and one of the things we kind of see over the course of Rebels, especially late in Star Wars Rebels, is with the appearance of Grand Admiral Thrawn. Um, and his, uh, interest in art in terms of trying to learn more about his opponents, Sabine was, uh, someone who came highly to his attention. Uh, and he had a number of pieces of her, uh, her quote unquote artwork, some of the graffiti work that she had done. And and he was trying to kind of learn more about her. And, um, I would say that's a very telling aspect of her. I mean, if you look at the ghost and, uh, the, the quarters on that ship, she was quite fond of, uh, doing a lot of artwork in the various, uh, cabins of the other passengers. She was constantly, changing the artwork of her very own armor, uh, which was much more colorful than what we typically would see with Mandalorians. And, uh, you know, what what are your guys' thoughts about her style of art and uh, kind of how that plays into her character a little bit? I love her style of art. Yeah. Um, for me, it was one of those things that it was like, okay, it's, it's now cool to be super creative in how your vehicles and, and your uh, costumes look. You know, um, it, it's not just the... I don't want to say cookie cutter, but it's not the stuff that we're used to. You know, right. it, it, it's it's colorful. It has boatloads of personality mm-hmm. in it. So as a fan, you look at that, and for me, it's like, okay, if, if I'm ever gonna do like a like a cosplay or something, just go nuts because this is in universe now. You know, this makes total sense. It's total inspiration, and 
I, th- I think it's it was just a really great creative move uh, for the Rebels team to make uh, for that character. Yeah. Michelle, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, for stars, I think the color in general would grab like young girls mm-hmm. specifically. Um, and I mean, of course, as much as I enjoy Rebels, it was geared towards a younger audience. Right. And I think that that aspect of her character just speaks to younger audiences like all that that color because it is and and that definitely stands out to me about her in general too because we've never really seen a character like that in star wars because star wars think of the original trilogy or even the the prequel and the sequel it's not very colorful like you don't see these bright colors on star wars characters I, i mean i feel like even kind of Bubba Fett in the original trilogy is probably about as colorful as it gets, like yeah. his uh, green on his stuff. Uh, so I think it was just a very interesting way, I think, to try to get the younger audience involved and, and to just kind of grab your attention from her hair to everything about her as colorful. Yeah. And I think it just kind of speaks to who she is as a character, really. Kind of yeah. unique. Kind yeah. of setting her apart in a way. She stands out. I mean, she's demanding yeah. to be noticed, yes. which, and it, and it is interesting to note that, I mean, when you look at her character through most of what we see uh, through the course of Star Wars Rebels, she's anywhere from around 16 years old, I believe, at the time where the series starts. And uh, by the time the Battle of Yavin would have rolled around, she'd have been, I think, 21. So as you pointed out, I mean, she's got the weight of having created this weapon uh, that was used to subjugate her people at the age of early, she was younger than 16 at this point. She was just a cadet uh, in this Imperial Academy. So probably uh, around the age of 14. And that's a huge weight to have on, on yourself. Um, she's got this artistic side and uh, just, she clearly had a lot of personal flair. She want, as you said, she was trying to kind of figure out who she was. And you see that through her, her art changing over the course of the series, uh, as she's constantly trying on these new color schemes and, and kind of trying to find herself that way as well. Um, but I think it's a good point. I mean, it is definitely a show that is for a younger audience. Uh, although I would argue that certainly when you get into some of the later seasons, they have a lot of more adult undertones that I think are, um, are, are there to be picked up. But, uh, having something where it is going to draw on that younger crowd is certainly going to be good for the future of star Wars. And I'm sure that that played no role whatsoever into their desire to have a character like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. I also love that the, uh, that the Alliance starboard is kind of traced back to her, you know, yeah. uh, g- gives some really cool, really cool backstory. Uh, you know, if you, if you dive into this stuff and, and you know about her and, you know, her art and, and what she contributed. And then, you know, every, everyone sees that rebel Alliance mm-hmm. logo, you know, that, that, that emblem and that to know that that's tied back to her. It's just a really cool connection. Uh, that I was really, really, really smart to make. Yep. Um, you know, and it's interesting to know too, that you know, she ends up uh, as part of this crew of the ghost and uh, Harrison Dula is certainly the captain of that crew. And um, there were ties with, uh, with Sabine, even back to the Imperial Academy where she was studying Cham Syndulla's battle tactics, uh, who was actually the father of Harrison Dula. So, you know, there, there seems to be a tie there. I don't, I don't know if that's what kind of caused her to join up with Harris cell, um, or if she came to know her, you know, through that route. But, um, Certainly, uh, within a lot of what we've seen in Star Wars, 
in Rebels, you've got these female characters truly taking the lead in very dangerous situations. Um, and that was uh, a very cool thing to see. I mean, you actually had Hera, who was not just the leader of this crew, but she was also the mother figure, really. Uh, and when you look at the age of a lot of the people that were on that ship with her, uh, it was probably in more than just name only. Um, certainly Ezra was very young. Sabine was very young. Uh, and, you know, they look at her very much in that way. And, and she kind of nurtured them and, and helped them become who they were. So um, it's it's an interesting show from a lot of different aspects. But uh, just to get back to Sabine a little bit, um, one of the things, and I'm going to tie this back to something Michelle said, that color um, that, that she brings to the show, and I totally agree. When you look at even Boba Fett's armor that you mentioned, uh, it was different colors, but it just kind of looked like it was a patched together piecemeal set of armor. It wasn't like it was a color scheme like that for a particular reason. Um, we saw the same thing with Din Djarin's armor in the first season of The Mandalorian. Now he's got just completely clean, you know, Baskar armor with no real pattern to it whatsoever. But it makes me wonder as I was, as I was talking to Adam a little bit before we started the show, he's talking about doing an episode on some star Wars video games. And with star Wars squadrons, just having come out, one of the things you can do is you can customize uh, your ship and add all kinds of artistic flares to it. And that's clearly something that people are interested in doing. And uh, the fact that they have kind of brought that aspect to a lot of the new star Wars that we're seeing uh, where we're getting some of that customization and uh, things that make it look not just like a used piece of equipment, but kind of give it some flair. They seem to be going in that direction. They certainly did with Star Wars Resistance, which that was an art style that really wasn't kind of um, up my alley. I think that was even for a younger group than uh, than Rebels would have been. Now you see, Patton Charles told me that you loved no, oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to I'm going to have to thank them for making sure that that stuck with you. I heard that, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know if this came out before uh, Rebels or not, but I remember buying a blank Stormtrooper helmet. It's this blank like resin mm-hmm. a vinyl type Stormtrooper helmet. And you were just supposed to decorate it. You know, yeah. uh, they gave you some of these paint markers that came with it. You could do whatever you wanted to it. Um I think that's the type of thing that Sabine can kind of inspire, you know, uh, get something like that, just be creative with it, make it your own. And then, you know, that can kind of be your own little thing in the star Wars universe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sabine kind of brought that to the forefront. Yeah. Well, and it ties in with, with the idea of what we see with the Mandalorians, right? Um, with the with the show the mandalorian when that was announced at star wars celebration they panned to the crowd you've got all these mando mercs that are out there in the crowd in their custom armor and unlike the 501st legion where you have to meet this strict set of requirements to get in with the mandalorian mercs it can be whatever you want as long as it you know kind of has that mandal mandalorian flair and uh that's very much in keeping with what we see with a, a character like sabine um but I do want to take this in a little bit different direction. And, and we talked earlier about the fact that at the end of uh, Rebels, you know, you kind of have Sabine giving a speech about how everyone went their separate ways and and how that was all falling out. And one uh, very interesting thing with Sabine is that while the the Rebels, the Spectres and later, uh, you know, Phoenix Squad were were a family, uh and they didn't, you know, they, they felt very strongly about losing any member of that family. But Sabine makes a very tough choice late in season four of, uh, of Rebels where she has to kind of let Ezra go off to 
take on a mission that she knows he may not be coming back from. And everyone else doesn't want him to go. Uh, but she's the one that nods to him and looks away and gives him the window to slip out. And when you look back at the fact that she was this young girl who was cast out from her family and, and had to go off on her own and kind of create her own path, that kind of seemed to tie together those two moments where she was, uh, for as young as she was, she still had that maturity to understand that sometimes you have to go off and do what you think is right. Um, even if everyone else around you wants you to stay. Uh, and I didn't really see that from any of the other characters that were kind of in his inner circle. They all kind of wanted him to stay. We'll protect you. We'll find another way. Um, you know, what do you think that tells the, the viewers about her maturity and, and who she is as a person by the end of Star Wars Rebels? Well, I was going to say, I think for starters, her and Ezra just had a special bond. Like they truly were like brother and sister mm -hmm. and they were growing up together and going through these difficult things together. So I think they just have, just as Kanan and Hera have, you know, their own connection, those two had their own connection. And so I think it, it was, it would have been Sabine mm -hmm. to give him that look of go ahead because they just, they understand one another. And mm -hmm. I think, too, that was kind of her growth of her letting him go because, you know, she did not want to let him go in her heart because she cared so deeply for him. But they were both to a place of, you know, kind of taking that next step in life. And uh, so I just kind of see it that way. They just had this very unique bond with one another. And there was no better person to give him the look of that other than Sabine. I, and it, the the irony of that for me is that early on when Ezra joins the crew uh, of the ghost, he kind of is like a little puppy dog. He, you know, it's like he has an attraction to her and he hasn't quite figured out what it is yet. And she's kind of like back off, you know, uh, she's not fully supportive of that, but I totally agree. I think that by the time th you get to the end of the show, you know, they, they very much are, uh, connected. They, they understand where the other is at. He, he is the one that trusts or entrusts uh, his his final message as part of his final message to Sabine to to kind of look after things, uh, which she takes to be on Lothal. But you know, ultimately, it's going to lead to this quest with Ahsoka to uh, to try to hunt him down and find out what became of Ezra. The attack we all anticipated never came. The once invincible Empire had begun to fracture. The small rebellion had become bold. And with a decisive victory at the Battle of Endor, the Emperor's reign of terror came to an end. As for me, I used to think that Ezra was counting on me to protect Lothal, the planet and the people he cared for so much. But one day, I realized there was more to it. There was something else I was meant to do. Ezra's out there somewhere, and it's time to bring him home.
So he he is entrusting her with the most important thing he possibly could. Uh, and I think that speaks very strongly to that bond you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. I'm just actually started uh, uh, last week a, a rewatch of Rebels and just yeah. to see those early moments like you were mentioning mm-hmm. where, you know, he definitely has that, you know, sort of high school attraction to yep. her. And, you know, she's she's a, she, like you said, she's a little more mature past that, I think. Right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that it, just to see those early days, because it's been years since I've mm-hmm. watched those episodes specifically, you know. Uh, so to go back and see that all over again, it's been a lot of fun. It's the thing about watching Star Wars. You uh, you go back and rewatch it, and yeah. you realize how much you've forgotten. And this is not on topic at all, but just uh, tonight I watched uh, the episode where Ahsoka and Rex meet up again for the mm-hmm. first time after years. And to see them after what I've seen in the seventh season of Clone Wars uh, was very different than it yeah. was when I first watched it, you know. Well, and that's one of the reasons I, you know, I I love doing the podcast because either you've got the people who who will just watch the films, they're not really interested in a lot of the ancillary material, um, and it's enjoyable from that perspective, and there's nothing wrong with that. But as you start to watch, you know, even if you just got into The Mandalorian, you can watch the first season of The Mandalorian and then go back and watch things from earlier Star Wars films and have different context. Um, I, we always talk about the fact that you watch any of the Clone Wars animated series and you go back and watch the prequels, you see things in a completely different light. And uh, certainly after you know Clone Wars Season 7, um, any number of things when you go back and watch them, you know they just have that much more weight. Knowing what was going on elsewhere in the universe as all the events were unfolding in, uh, in Revenge of the Sith. So... Uh, there's again it's an onion right every time you peel back a layer there's something underneath yeah, it exactly um, right. and as you said I, and that's what makes it so much fun that's why as you watch all this additional material or even if you just get into a subset of it um, you're going to find that you view things differently when you watch other star wars content and that's why people are still talking about it 42 years later um and why i have dave filoni down here in my basement <laughs> <laughs> Dave, blink if you need to blink right twice now. You know. he, he would be too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, any uh, well, the other thing I do think we probably should talk about a little bit is when, for a brief period of time, Sabine actually was holding the dark saber before she passed that on to uh, Bo-Katan and, and kind of gave her charge of of the Mandalore people. One of the interesting things that kind of comes out in that training is you know, Kanan is trying to train her from a, a very Jedi standpoint. And Sabine is is not a Jedi, at least not that we know at this point. Uh, and she is still a Mandalorian. She still has to rely on uh, all the things that she knows. Uh, and she kind of comes up with this hybrid battle style, which involves, you know, the Mandalorian Bambraces and all the various uh, devices that they have to help counter Jedi, uh, along with the Darksaber. And I think that was kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting look, because we don't really get to see, uh, you know, we see straight up Jedi on like a Jango Fett character where it's just the the Mandalorian devices. But the combination of that and uh, having the Darksaber at her disposal does let her get the better of Ezra for a period of time. And that was without a whole lot of training on her part. Yeah. It kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier with her, with her parentage, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with her mother. I, I think a lot of that comes back to, you know, what she was raised around and then she gets involved with the Imperial Academy at a young age. So, I mean, um, she's smart with that stuff. You know? yeah. She has that background and 
it shines through all of Rebels. Well, and you actually bring up a good point by bringing the, the dark saber up like that, or that that fight. Uh, it kind of goes back to me thinking in Mandalorian season two, uh, cause to bring in either Ahsoka, who I think is going to be brought in, or Sabine with the, well, yeah, Sabine. I guess the dark saber is Moff Gideon has right. the dark saber <laughs> right now, but. You know, you think of Mandalorians fighting without or fighting a saber without anything. You think right. of Jango Fett. Yep. He goes, I mean, his head gets cut off in like two seconds. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a very good fight. Um, uh, I guess he does better against Obi-Wan for a while. Right. But my point being for Mando, for whoever, I've, I've been saying this for a while. It leaves the door for someone with the saber to come through the door. Because how do you fight the dark saber without a saber? Yeah. So. Yeah, and as you pointed out, I mean, certainly Jango Fett. With the dissonance of how we see Jango Fett fight Obi Wan on Kamino, uh, where he is actually doing pretty well against Obi-Wan before they finally escape. Um, granted, he's got Boba up there kind of using the ship to, to distract uh, Obi-Wan as well, but uh, versus how quickly he gets taken out in that arena on Geonosis at the end, which was just, you know, it builds up that the, that the Mandalorians or someone with Mandalorian armor can actually stand up against an experienced Jedi. And then five seconds later, it's like, Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> he got off three shots and, and got decapitated. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely and and again the pairing of her and Ahsoka. Um, it seems like a pretty natural pairing. I'd be very interested to hear what Michelle's thoughts are on this. She clearly has some. I suspect you're holding out for uh, for a separate episode, but you know, after the fact, we'll talk. <laughs> I mean, I, I can give it, but I mean, I'll, you know, whatever. I was trying to keep it to Sabine only. <laughs> no, no, we can, uh, we can go into that stuff. I think it's interesting. I mean, it all kind of ties back. Oh, well, I've had a theory. It may be wrong since they could very well are bringing Sabine in. Mm -hmm. I had a theory at the end of season one that man, that Mando would end up with the dark saber at a point and kind of lead a new, you know, kind of a new Mandalorian people. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, again, this is the whole point of theories, right? It can be anything that we want them to be. There's certainly a basis for that. And the other thing about it is that, uh, you know, Sabine, one of the things that we see with Sabine and all the Mandalorians in Star Wars Rebels is there is no code where you can't take off your helmet. Uh, and now we're years down the road and, and the Mando... Uh, and the group that he is part of uh, have this this creed where if you take off your helmet, it's off forever. Um, that is certainly a big change from what most people know within Star Wars. That's not something that that we would see associated back to Sabine. And, uh, you know, it kind of makes you wonder what happened with the Mandalorian people that would lead to that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you, you, you see this type of stuff in the real world, you know, when, when you talk about like schisms within uh, religions or things like that where you know something happens where one group will, will split off from another and uh, where they both still maybe identify with roughly the same thing mm -hmm. they have some very different creeds you know uh, so uh, that's kind of where I equate that whole that whole thing because it, it does create some confusion I think especially yeah. if, when um, you know, especially if you're jumping into this stuff, maybe for the first time or, um, just getting into watching rebels and you see this Mandalorian character that takes off her helmet all the time. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, uh, that's kind of how I've always thought about it. But yeah, I I totally agree with Adam. That's the way I view it. It's just like different clans have mm. different rules that they follow. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that I feel like Manda's going to be like, what the heck? Like, she gets <laughs> to take her helmet off all the time, and I haven't taken it off since I've been a kid. Uh, so I feel like there may be a little bit of resentment when we... <laughs> I'm just joking, but but seriously, I don't know how. He's probably going to be like, uh... <laughs> If he if he does indeed meet Sabine, because that would be a little shocking when you've been told your whole life you have to keep your helmet on at all times or you can't be a part of the clan. And then if you see her or multiple other Mandalorians taking that helmet off. Right. Well, if there's any truth to the fallout with uh, Pedro Pascal and uh, the, the creators of the Mandalorian about him wanting more FaceTime on screen, then uh, Sabine would be his perfect excuse, right? Hey, she gets to take her helmet off all the time. Uh, yeah <laughs> yeah right how, can we do uh can we do a rebel series live action <laughs> <laughs> but yeah uh you know that's those are the major points i kind of wanted to hit on with sabine uh any other items that you guys think would would be useful to throw into the mix just give someone who's maybe not super familiar with the character a little bit uh better idea of what they might be in for if she were to appear in mando season two. Oh wow um well for, uh, first let me ask, do, do, do you both think that uh, Sasha Banks' character that we saw, do you think that's Sabine? No. I do. Okay. Uh, I'm on the fence, so I can't, I can't wait and <laughs> break this tie. Um, if, man, what she'll be like in season two would be, I, I almost think that we might see a little bit of a different Sabine than we're used to. I mean, there's some years that have passed here. There's mm-hmm. some things that have happened. We don't know what's happened with Ezra, you know, if maybe... If, if something has transpired there in in the last few years, um, so for me, if that is Sabine, I'm very interested to see where she is mm-hmm. at this point in time. You know, uh, because it might not be the same that I remember. However, if it is, um, and you know, someone's maybe not familiar with Sabine, uh, she's a, a a smart, confident, um, badass. I don't know, can can you <laughs> totally are you okay with that? All right. Absolutely. Um, very uh, creative, just a straightforward character. I mean, mm-hmm. she's a lot of fun, easy to get behind, easy to root for. Mm-hmm. And, and if this is going to be, if Sabina's happening in season two, and if this is your first introduction to her, I think, I think you're gonna have a lot of fun with that character. Yeah. Hopefully she gets more than, you know, just an episode. I only say I think it's her because I'm, I could just see her opening up that cloak and it's all lined with Kansas spray paint. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Instead yeah, of watches, that, right? That's what you're looking for. Right. You're, looking at, you're looking at someone like that, spray paint and, yeah. and explosives. Yeah. So. Yeah. She, I mean, physically, um, uh, she's pretty close to, to what I would expect to see from Sabine. Uh, I thought that, you know, that hood being up was, uh, a good way for them to conceal if, you know, she had the, the colorful hair. Um, but again, who knows, who knows where they're going with it. Um, uh, for me, it's just in my head canon, at least when I think about kind of where I think they're at on the timeline, uh, especially with Ahsoka being brought in, I kind of see the two of them either just setting off or having been on this mission to find Ezra. And, uh, I would see them kind of being tied together, but I don't know, Michelle, I mean, do you, do you have any feelings about who it might be or, or, uh, just well, not that it's I- Sabine? I'm not, I mean, it could be Sabine. It mm-hmm. definitely could. Sure. I'm not just like 100%. There's no way no. it's not Sabine. Like, I'm not that way. Um, I just, I almost feel like if they were going to put Sabine in the trailer, 
they almost would have made it a little more obvious it is Sabine, actually, mm-hmm. instead of making it so mysterious. I don't know. Maybe yeah. not. Maybe they want it that way. Um, but I did, thinking of Sabine and the Clone Wars recently, um, is it Bo-Katan when she, she's kind of like following Ahsoka and those two girls? Yeah, the Martyrs sisters. young women. Yep. Are they cloaked? I think yes. they're cloaked, aren't they? Yeah. And they're following her. And that actually did remind me of that. Yep. Um, so that's, you know, maybe a point for your view of thinking it is Sabine. So, I mean, it could be, um, I'm just not, I, I almost just felt like I said, I almost feel like if it was that they would just would have kind of let, made it a little more obvious at right. that point, if they were going to show her at all. I yeah. don't know. Maybe. I'll say this. <laughs> if, if it's a character that we've seen before, I think it's definitely Sabine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I've wondered if it's a, if it's like a brand new character. I mean, uh, we've been hearing so many things about, you know, Boba Fett and Ahsoka. And, you know, maybe there's a, a an Ezra Bridger. Um, I forget the actor that was rumored to be playing Ezra Bridger. Right. That was there. Uh, there's been talks about Thrawn. There's been talks about yeah. them. All this other stuff. And... Um, you know, season one kind of just showed us that they're not afraid to just go new places. So I've been wondering if it's a brand new character that we've mm-hmm. never met before. Um, but like I said before, if it is someone we know, then it's definitely Sabine. Mm-hmm. It could easily be someone on the Imperial side uh, working with Gideon to kind of track down, you know, Mando and Baby Yoda uh, yeah. and be something yeah. completely, you know, out of left field that we're not expecting. So um, that's the fun about watching the show. We're going to get to find out. Uh, certainly, if, if season one's anything to uh, base it off of, we're not going to have to wait too long before they start dropping bombshells. We had to wait, what, the end of the first episode? So that's uh, true. Got to get it out there for the merchandising, right? Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, I think. I think this will give, uh, you know, folks that are not super familiar with Sabine or don't know about her at all, a little bit of an idea of who that character is in case she shows up. Um, and again, I always think that's helpful, uh, just so you, you don't have this character dropped on you and you really don't know who, uh, or what they've done, why they're, why they're there in the first place. So really appreciate both of you guys, uh, staying up late on a Saturday to come on and talk. Um, it looks like Michelle's got baby Yoda well in hand in the background there. (laughs) (laughs) I love baby yoda. <laughs> of course everyone loves baby yoda um, i gotta be honest this isn't late for me i've got another solid couple of hours in nice me, so. nice yeah <laughs> My, i will say this that i think if sabine is in it she will definitely defend baby yoda that's oh, all i'm gonna say all day long <laughs> is she gonna be the one teaching baby yoda how to use a lightsaber <laughs> she might teach him how oh. to how to you know, then baby Yoda can be the typical kid where Mando walks in and he spray painted the entire wall. There you go. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) His new force spray paint ability. (laughs) (laughs) I put nothing, uh, I put nothing past Dave Filoni and John Favreau in terms of coming up with some ridiculous thing. Um, just to just to get a laugh so we already know that favreau voices at least one character every season yes i feel like that's definitely his voice uh-huh. and that creature and that thing it, i caught it the first time i watched yep. the trailer yep it's very distinctive he makes it into everything <laughs> saves yeah, the money like, on yeah. actors on voice actors he's like, right he's like what's the pixar uh john uh yeah ratzenberger ratzenberger yep. yeah, there you go yep <laughs> awesome well thank you guys both for coming on why don't uh why don't you each uh let the listeners know where they can find you guys and your podcast and i guess we'll start with michelle first 
Yes, well, I am one half of Force of Light Entertainment, and you can find us everywhere podcasts are. You also can find us on YouTube, where we do some specifically YouTube-only content. Uh, we also are on Twitter and Instagram at Force of Light Entertainment, and I personally am Michelle34Smith on both Instagram and Twitter. Awesome. And Adam? I am uh, one half of the certain from a certain point of view podcast. Best place to find us would be the website from a certain point of view dot com. Uh, from there, it has everywhere you can find us. So, uh, every podcast app that we're on, our blog, show notes for every episode, all that stuff. Uh, so, from a certain point of view dot com, that's the best place to check us out. Yeah, and you guys are both uh, podcasts that are part of the Red 5 Network. It is such a great group of people to work with. Uh, we have a ton of fun here. We have a ton of fun on social media. Um, and uh, there's some pretty crazy episodes. I know you guys have both done episodes with Pat and Charles recently. Uh, I, owe, <laughs> yeah. I owe them both a debt of gratitude for making sure that Adam got that, that dig in about <laughs> resistance too. So. As for us here at JTA Podcast, the easiest way to find us is via our website at jtapodcast.com, uh, certainly on any of your favorite podcatchers. And if you want to shoot us an email to talk about the show or upcoming topics, uh, you can do that on jtapodcast at gmail.com. You can reach us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at JTA Podcast. So uh, definitely don't hesitate to reach out to us via any of those means. Uh, but I think with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap the show. Hope you guys all have an incredible week and look forward to coming back with another new topic here in a couple of weeks. You guys all stay safe and may the force be with you. podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com.